0: Gentlemen, if you would follow Zach and ladies, if you would follow me. To Jesus has been satisfied, He will all be raised with Him.
1: 2 Kings chapter 16, we've come as far as uh, verse 1 here. Last we left off uh, was with Jotham. He has a son by the name of Ahaz, who's going to turn out to be probably one of the top three or four most wicked kings in all of Judah. Okay, other than maybe, you know, Manasseh, you know, somebody like, he's right at the top. He's right at the top for the most wicked people. And we're going to learn why here. And I think it speaks tremendously um, in a couple ways. Because, first of all, Ahaz is going to have a son, right? And yet we're going to see that Hezekiah is going to reign in his place. And there's this beautiful picture that, you know, while his father was incredibly evil... That's not a direct reflection on who the son will be. There's an individual choice for the son and or daughter that way to make their own choices in Christ Jesus. And we'll see that, in, you know, eventually in Hezekiah. And just like with Jotham, you know, it wasn't... We read back in, in Jotham that in verse 34 it said in chapter 15, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. So it works both ways. That, that also Ahaz chose To walk in evil, even though his father was not a terribly, you know, evil king that way. And it just, it got me uh, praying and thinking about the impact that family members, parents, friends have on a life. And especially a young life, Uh, a child, uh, uh, you know, a young sibling, somebody in the home, a, a grandchild. And just the impact that it, it you make in the kingdom of God when you pour into that little one that way. And I, I think it's absolutely substantial, and we, we continue to see that. Um, but ultimately, we know, and I, I say this because I know in this room tonight, there are prodigals, uh, parents here, if I can say that way, prodigal parents. And you're praying your child, your loved one there, your grandchild, maybe a family member, you pray in that they return to the Lord. Right? They once were walking with Christ. You raised them in a Christian home. They came to faith on their own. But for whatever reason, as they got out on their own, and, you know, they started making their own decisions and began to walk away from God, walk away from Jesus Christ. And we continuously pray, as a matter of fact, when we get together at the East Coast Pastors Conference. Pastors certainly aren't exempt from this. As a matter of fact, when we're at the East Coast Pastors Conference. It's really like 1,600 pastors or more from all around the country. And as we gather, we, you know, Pastor Joe Foschel will say, and all those that would like prayer for the prodigals, it's astounding about how many men stand up because they have prodigal sons or prodigal daughters or grandchildren, and we lay hands on them and we begin to pray. And so this is a real, you know, a real problem, a real event in our lives. Even today we see this, and it just was it was top of mind before we began tonight. Just I want to be an encouragement to you. Keep pouring into them. Keep pouring into these young people. They need you. And I don't care, young people can be 50. You don't ever give up. Jesus isn't done. Amen. Father, we're going to come before you this evening. Certainly, we want to thank you and praise you that Bob is with you, Lord. We are so ever grateful, Lord, that he heard the most beautiful words today, Lord. Enter into thy reward. As he's in paradise with you, Jesus, worshiping you. And all of this earth and the things of it are a faint memory to him. But Lord, his wonderful, beautiful, sweet Nancy, our sister, Lord, we do lift her up to you. We pray enlarge her heart. Jesus, occupy more of it. Because there's nothing and no one, Lord, other than you, that can ever fill that part of her heart in the loss that she's experienced, experiencing for you, Lord. Experiencing for Bob. Lord, we pray you'd go before us with your precious word here this evening. As we read even this chapter, Lord, um, let us have a reflection of our lives, an examination. Maybe even an examination of our government, Lord, of the world and the things that are going on around us. Lord, Judah, and I think it's a few short years, Lord, it's, as you know, it was a hundred and something years. They're going to follow the very footsteps of Israel and go into captivity, Lord. But ultimately, God, you show it's a personal choice. It's a choice of a nation, whether they choose to denounce God or not. It's a choice of an individual. So, God, I pray tonight we make our calling and election sure. We make a declaration that we will stand with you, Jesus, and we pray that you will imprint your most precious word, Lord, that you lift even higher than your name on the very tablets of our heart this evening. Lord Jesus, we ask that you do that. We need you, Lord. We need your word. We pray and we ask this in your mighty name, Jesus Christ. Anoint your word. Amen. Chapter 16, verse 1 in 2 Kings. In the 17th year, okay, so that's about 732 BC, just for the record, history is about to repeat itself here. um, Of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do, underline that, what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. So, when you consider 20 kings of Judah, he is counted as one of the 12 that would be known as evil kings of Judah. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Drawing our attention back to the north, not just the south. And the idolatry, the pagan worship. And as we're going to read, that's, that's exactly what he's going to do. It's, he's going to actually end up worshiping the Assyrian pagan gods as well. The very, his very cousins that are going to get brought into captivity, he, they're going to, he's going to end up worshiping their god. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire. according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord has cast out before the children of Israel. Please pay attention to that. He's very clear here. It's an abomination for child sacrifice. Murdering children is an abomination to the Lord. That's what we read here. And he sacrificed and burned incense which is telling us it's also Baal worship, or Baal worship, on the high place and on the hills under every green tree. Every green tree. Do you know how many trees there are in the south of Judah? Every green tree this man is going, and he's practicing this idolatry directly. The stench had to just lift right up to the throne room of heaven. After Judah, David, the Davidic covenant the messianic line that's supposed to come through, that will come through this very tribe, the promises that God has given to this nation. And he's turning and and walking, not just compromising, but vehemently walking against God and, and almost shoving it in his face. I mean this is this is a this is brazen. That, that word means it's it's foolishly bold. That's what he's doing here. He's worshiping nature. He's worshiping the, the creation, not the creator. And then we read here in verse that Rezin, king of Syria, we read about him already, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war, and they besieged Ahaz, but he could not overcome him. If you remember, they were forming a pack, because Assyria, back in chapter 15, in verse 29, we read, In the days Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and took Ejon, Abel, Beth, Maka, Jonah, Kadish, Hazor, Gilead, Galilee, and the land of Naphtali. And he carried away them captive to Assyria. And if you remember, I mentioned also, it was Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh that's included in that from the tribes. And so what he's already done is he's already begun to go in that king of Assyria. And he's begun to take the land from the northern tribe of Israel. And God's allowing it because of the idolatry. And so Pekah gets this grand idea. Well, you know what? We'll take other land. Let's go down to Judah and we'll take their land. And that's how we'll occupy. And, and I, you know, some scholars have said maybe there was a pact or an attempt at a pact with the king in here. In other words, Ahaz or Jotham, his father, with the king of Judah to say, join us, join us, join us with the king of Assyria and the king of Israel that way or excuse me, the king of Syria, I meant to say, not Assyria, the, the, the king of uh, Israel, join us together, and then we'll take on uh, um, the king of Assyria that way, um, Tiglath. Some scholars say that that was offered to him based on extra biblical evidence and historians, and the record recounts he said no. He said, no, I won't go to battle. So some suggest that this is possibly uh, vindictive, uh, because he already knows he's going down, so he figures, I'm going to go to Judah, and I'm going to try to wipe him out too, because if I'm getting wiped out, you're not going to join me and help, well, then I'm going to wipe you out, his own cousins, his own cousins that way. And at the time, Rezin, king of Syria, captured Elath for Syria, and drove the men of Judah from Elath, and then the Edomites went to Elath and dwelt there to this day. So I had sent messengers to Tiglath, Klazer, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Are are you seeing this? He knows who God is. He knows the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't run to to the Lord to ask for... I mean, let us go back just how many books... To the time of the judges, where at least in the book of Judges, when they were all doing what was right in their own eyes, they would turn around and what would they do? They would sin, they would get in trouble, God would bring judgment, and then they would run to God and say, Lord, forgive me. They would repent and say, God, restore us, God would, out of grace and mercy, and then they would rinse and repeat. This has gone so far and so long because of the pagan worship and the idolatry that's been going on, not only in the north, but also now we see in Judah, and it's gotten so bad that they're not even running to God anymore. When they're about to be conquered, when they're about to, you know, be destroyed by their own kinsmen, that way their cousins or even another foreign country like Syria, they're not even reaching out to God and saying, God help, we've, we blew it, we, we messed up. It just shows you how far they've come, how far they've come from the Lord. He says, I'm your servant. You you understand what he's saying there. You're my master. Who's who's the only one that should ever be our master? Uh, The Lord, Jesus Christ. There's no other man that should ever be our master. He is willingly pledging his soul to this man. Because he trusts more in what he can see and the strength of a man's army than he does in the living God. He forgets who delivered Egypt from their captivity in the beginning. It was God. God is a deliverer. That's what he does. That's what he does. But he runs to this man to solve his problems, to fix things. He says, come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. He's, he's scheming, isn't he? He's scheming. And Ahaz took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord. Is that his treasure? That's not his treasure. That's the Lord's. So now we see what begins to also happen. He now even takes it upon himself that he thinks he's entitled to God's treasure that way, or God's house, or God's implements, or the things that belong to the Lord. There's no line anymore. You know, it's where's the line in the sand? There is no line. He's just blown through all of the stop signs, and the warnings, and the yield, and the stop, wait, he's now literally going into the house of God and ransacking it so that he can create, basically, money to pay off this Assyrian king. Didn't God already protect Ahaz? Because we read that Rezin, the king of Assyrian, Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up against Jerusalem to make war. We read about that in verse 5, right? And they besieged it, but Ahaz, right, but they couldn't do what? Overcome it. So already we read that God was able to protect them and provide for them and care for them. It wasn't like, they're like, Lord, I can't hear you. Lord, I can't see you moving. No, they should have been besieged. They should have been conquered. They, but God didn't allow it. He didn't allow it. And, he, and it was evident that he didn't allow it, I believe, even to Ahaz. So he takes the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house. And he sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria heeded him. For the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it. Carried its people captive to Ker and killed Rezin. That's, again, the king of Syria. Was he going to do that anyway? Yes. Now, King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. And he saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Raja, the priest, the design of the altar and its pattern. Didn't the Lord already give Israel a pattern? Didn't he give it to Moses? Didn't they have a tabernacle and then a temple that Solomon, through the moving of the Lord, built? I mean, this isn't good. Not only is he looking to the world to solve his military issues and you know but now he's willing to look to his god or his pagan god he literally walks in and he sees this this altar that way right i mean let the video run he sees an altar he's looking around to masses look at that he says we need one of those boy does that just reek of the world you know, the whole copycat thing. And, you know, you, you, look, everybody's going to chase something, you know. I mean, everybody's going to follow something. Everyone's going to have a master. But who your master is matters. He made this man his master, and he took the place that only belongs to Jesus Christ. And now, inevitably, what do you think? It's going to stop right there? The enemy's going to stop right there? Of course not. He's going to go for the juggle. He's going to try to consume it. Because this is a problem. This is a spiritual condition. It's a spiritual condition. It's a problem with his heart, his spirit that way. And so he sees this according to all its workmanship. Then Urijah, the priest, built an altar. Now, what about Urijah? I mean, shouldn't he have stopped and said, wait a minute. What are you doing, king? Ahaz, we have a God. He's given us a pattern. He's told us how to worship. We're in Judah. We didn't go up and, you know, do what Jeroboam did and start making calf worship again. We've been worshiping the one true God. We have a great pedigree and legacy here in Judah. A good heritage. Why why would we build this altar that we could make on our hands and worship a God that we make with our hands? Again, we're going to read later on. But if you can make a God with your hands, you ought not to worship it. Because if you can create it, it didn't create you. Simple. If you can create it, it didn't create you. And you ought not to worship that. It's that simple. So Urijah, the priest built an altar according to all that the king Ahaz had sent from Damascus. He's the high priest. So Urijah, the priest made it before king Ahaz and came back before, or came from Damascus. And when the king came back from Damascus, the king saw the altar, and the king approached the altar. And this is where it begins to obviously grieve the heart if it hadn't already. He made offerings on it. Now, please look at how he makes offerings. These are the very things that are written in the Mosaic Law. Do you see the blasphemy of all this? It's not like, let me worship the way that they worship in Assyria because I'm already copycatting their gods. And so I'm going to copycat their worship. To some extent, he did that with child sacrifice. But now he takes this altar and he begins to worship it the way Jehovah desired to be worshiped on the altar that God commanded him after the pattern that God has established in the Mosaic Law. So basically he thinks that his gods are interchangeable, or should I say his religious system is interchangeable. As though I, I can take a little of this, I can take a little of that, and it must be better. Because I've got this, I've got that, I've got this. So therefore God must be even more pleased. That's... Not how it works. That's not what Scripture teaches us. Let's continue to read on here. What he says. So, it says that. And when he came back again, the king saw the altar, and the king and the king approached the altar and made offerings on it. So he burned his uh, sorry. He burned his burnt offering and his grain offering, and he poured his drink offering, and sprinkled the blood of his peace offering. I find it ironic. Now he wants to worship God. And the offerings on the altar. He also brought the bronze altar. Now, this is the bronze altar. Remember with the oxen and the labor and everything that was built that was sitting up uh, those the, on the bowl that would sit on those oxen that way? And it's, it's the bronze altar that way he takes it and removes it from where it is outside the temple and begins the courts that is and begins to bring it over on this pagan altar you you see what he's doing don't you he's mixing and matching please understand the spiritual implication of what's being really told to us here it's not just I'm taking an implement here I'm taking an artifact here and I'm I'm pulling these together no what he's trying to do is he's trying to coexist He's trying to enable pluralism. He's trying to take different religious systems and somehow achieve a harmony by bringing it all together. And somehow that's better. Boy, that sounds familiar. That even sounds familiar from some of the men that stand in pulpits today. Men that I think most of us at one time regarded as good men. But now find themselves in the very same passage as we're reading here. Where they've begun to mix and match and compromise. Is this pleasing to God? So he takes the bronze altar which was before the Lord from the front of the temple. From between the new altar and the house of the Lord. Please underline new. He's going to say it three times here. And put it on the north side of the what? The new altar again. Then the king Ahaz commanded your the priest saying, On this what? Great new altar. Underline new again three times. Burn the morning, burn offerings. It, new has to be better, friends. New has to be better, right? I mean, that's, that's what's, can I say it this way? Sexy in Christianity today? news better news got to be better i mean let's do something new let's let's spice it up because people well they're they're bored you mean we keep reading the bible that's all we do we just read the bible we read the, there's nothing new we just keep reading the bible and when we get bored of the bible we turn on the news we bring that into the pulpit we do all we just keep going we got to spice it up. Keep them engaged. Because, you know, after all, the data is saying that attention spans are getting shorter and shorter. So we cater to it. And so by doing, we have a biblical, I'll say that right. We have a biblical illiterate generation of Christians. Of Christians. Because of this great new altar this great new worship because this great new reset because of this great new compromise how many men and women have bought into this because from the pulpit they've been lied to right from the pit of hell then the eating grain offering and the king The king's burnt sacrifice and his grain offering with all the burnt offerings of all the people of the land, their grain offering and the drink offering and sprinkle on it all the blood of the burnt offerings and all the blood of the sacrifice. Basically, he's putting it into ritual mode, not the way that it was under Judaism in the Mosaic law, because he's added to it. He's created his own. And then he said, rinse and repeat, because obviously that's going to appease someone somewhere. Because did, did Jehovah ask for this? Did the Lord? Did Elohim? Plural. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's what Elohim means. Did, did he ask for that? No. We don't, we don't read that, friends, right? I'm asking these, these, these questions purposefully because I think today we need to ask those questions. Why, are we, why is that being done? Why are we doing this? Why is this ritual? Why, why are we changing what the Bible has taught us to do for thousands of years. Is God no longer on the throne? Is he not the ancient of days? Is he, ever, is he not saying in scripture. I am never changing. In other words. He's always the same yesterday. Today and tomorrow. Why is it that we think. We have to change. The way we worship. When God is so faithful. To give us instruction. In how we should worship him. And spirit and truth. I love that God didn't, you know, leave it up to, you know, what I think is a good idea or, or another man or a woman thinks is a good idea. But he made it so simple. Worship me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And these two things I say unto you, you have fulfilled the law and the prophets which means the whole council of God, all 66 books. But yet there's this desire, there's this carnality in man, Christianity, in Christians as well, that we want to do more. We want to work it. We want to earn it. We want to strive with it. And again, it's quite honestly a lie from the pit of hell and a distraction because all Jesus wants us to do is honor His commandments and statutes, love Him, and enter into the peace by putting on His yoke and walking that out and enjoying the relationship we have with Jesus because of His sacrifice on the cross, because of the work He's done, because of the love He has for you and I, and that He's bestowed upon each other, one for another. It's beautiful. Jesus did it. Perfectly, Can we all say that? He did it perfectly. There's nothing more that needs to be added to make it complete. It is perfect by the very essence of his spilled blood that fulfilled the covenant and ratified it. And the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. What spirits are you talking to, man? Thus did Urijah, the priest, according to all that King Ahaz commanded. This is a problem. You know, when... It's something I'm, I'm becoming more and more clear as I look at other nations and countries around us. Canada, other... You know, I can, I can go on and on. I'll just put, leave it there. I'll just lay it down hot there. When I look at these things, when the church goes, so does the nation. When the church goes, so does the nation. When the word of God is no longer being taught, people can be taught anything and be brainwashed to believe anything. This priest is compromised and, have you ever thought about World War II or studied historically some of the events during World War II? Have you ever thought about the churches in Germany? Do you know one of the largest regrets from so many in the pulpits in Germany when Hitler, you know, fascism, socialism, and then obviously a form of communism, when he was doing the things he had begun to do, extermination of the Jews and all that, why didn't we stand up and say something These are God's chosen people. Why did we stand. And just. Indifferent. I've thought about that. You know I think about that in our nation. In our country. I'm sure you think about that. Not to be indifferent. I'm praying about that. Because again when the church goes. So does the nation. I mean I. How many churches closed and have never reopened because of the pandemic and COVID and all the things that have happened? Their fra- cities were closing them down. They couldn't even sit in, the, in California. They, couldn't even sit, they were getting fined sitting in their cars with their windows rolled up with masks on, in their own cars with nobody else in there. And I think the Lord, that there were men and women that, you know, said, wait, why are we doing this? We're, we're in our own car. And, and yet there were cities and councils finding millions of dollars. I have, I have a brother in California that, you know, he joined us at one of the conferences. He was talking, he opened, he says, I've got $2 million, not only on the church, but personally the courts have come after me. I am liable for $2 million. And, and you know what they said to him? Hey, look, we'll, we'll be willing to distract. We'll let you worship. We just want you to, can't you just mumble? That way you just put the mat, you just mumble. Isn't that okay? We'll make all this go away. It happened. It happened. It's, it's recorded. There's testimony on that. The judge had, it, it's recorded. And I praise God for the pastor that said, absolutely not. We will worship. It's our God-given right to worship. When the church goes, so does the nation. And King Ahaz cut off the panels and the carts, of the carts, and removed the labors from them. And he took down the sea from the bronze auction that was the top portion there, that were under it. And he put it on the pavement of the stones he literally is dissecting God's pattern for worship. It, it's got his fingerprints all on it. Isn't it worship of Jehovah anymore? I don't know what this is, but it's not worship of God. And also, he removed the Shabbat, the Sabbath pavilion, which they had built in the temple, and he removed the king's outer entrance from the house of the Lord on account of the king of Assyria. Now, the rest of the acts of Ahaz, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? What was Ahaz's sin here? Trusting in man, not in God. And what do we learn from that? That leads to false worship. Right? You you with me? You see that? Trusting in man and not in God. Trusting in man and not in the word of God. Trusting in man and his wisdom leads to false worship and idolatry. Walking away from God, which then leads to pluralism or some type of chocolate mashed potato pie of some kind. That gets mixed and matched, and that's exactly what pluralism does. Some of you are like, "Chocolate, what?" All right, I didn't mean the record it for it. Pluralism. Every time I see those coexist bumper stickers, I, I want to lovingly say, "Can you pull over? Can we just have five minutes together, please?" Let me explain what you're really asking for. And then tell me, let me bring you to Second Kings here. Chapter 16. Is this really what you want? I really believe they would say, I, I have no idea. No. No. So Ahad rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And then his godly son is born, right? Even under the influence of an evil father, which teaches us its choice. Then Hezekiah, the son, raised in his place. Now we'll go back to the north here in chapter 17. Again, right around 732 BC, 721 BC is when they go into captivity, okay? This is literally the last king of Israel that we're reading about right here, okay? In the 12th year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea the son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the king of Israel who was before him. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, that's different. That's not what we're used to reading. What happened? And like his, you know, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, right? What, what happened? Oh, no. No, we're past that now. This is, remember, this has already begun to spin. This has already picked up speed. This, they're right about to go into captivity. The significance of this, we're going to talk about the dating here and the progression of time that this has occurred. It is striking it is absolutely striking when I go through this. Week, when you look at what we're going to read here and how quickly it happened. And then also, how many times, just think about it, as we were going through in our study, how many times did God intervene and say, stop? How many th- Isaiah the prophet, who's a contemporary on the scene right now. How many of the prophets have been raised up? He did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the king of Israel who were before him, right? No, he, he does it different. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hosea became his vassal. You know what a vassal is? It's it's think of a hub, and then think of the spokes. The way Assyria worked is it used a hub-spoke model for basically conquering the nations. They would come in first, and they would begin to conquer and put pressure and and dominate so that you clearly knew who was threatening you and or in charge the next thing they would do is they would then begin to take those people and if they were compliant they would begin to pay a tax for that enjoyment of being a a vassal or a a spoke of the big hub there of the mothership right so you'd send money back and and okay we'll keep you there right now because you're serving our need and you're enriching us and so enriching us what are you doing to yourself What are you doing to yourself? You're running up your national debt while other countries are getting richer and your resources are dwindling while other countries are selling and exporting their resources. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Just checking. So, (laughs) um, so what we see here, and this is important is, Is he makes them a vassal. And then what is going to happen thereafter. And what Assyria did. Is then they would take. And they would begin to take large groups of people. And they would move them out. And send people from other nations. And move them in. It was kind of like a musical chairs of nations. We'll move you in. We'll move you out. And in so doing. They created instability. They basically removed the roots. Because if there wasn't roots. People were less likely to uprise. And come against the mothership that way, or the influence of that nation. <laughs> so Hoshea became his vassal, and they paid him tribute money. And the king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to sow. That's the name king of Egypt and brought no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. So what had happened is we now see that there is a new king of Assyria that's coming on the scene. Remember verse three, Shalom and Nasser is a different king. So what happened here is he thought, well, you know what, Hosea is saying, uh, maybe, you know, just like they would challenge the kings of Israel when a new king came in, one of the other nations, the, you know, Edom or somebody else would say, maybe we're not going to send our tribute. We'll see if he'll come against us. Well, this king, Hosea, did the same thing. He says, maybe this other king that's now the son of, you know, maybe Shalem and maybe he's not as strong. Maybe he's not as quick with the fist. Maybe we don't have to pay that way. So he's testing him. Well, it gets back to him. It gets back to him that what he's trying to do is what? Create an alliance with the very people that put him in captivity. How many hundreds of years ago? Somewhere around 730 or so. 1440, right? We can do our math. We'll we'll get there in a minute. How quickly we forget. He's really, literally willing to run to the very pharaoh and the very people of Egypt that enslaved him and put the nation in captivity because he thinks that's a better answer. And somehow that's going to help him, not realizing that he's playing right into their hands and he's going to find himself Actually, the whole nation of the north side, I should say, they're all going to go into captivity because of this. So it brought no tribute to the king of Assyria, and he has done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Caught him trying to make a different deal, right? It's, it's interesting. I, it, look at, turning your Bibles to Isaiah, please, the book of Isaiah. L- would you look at with me at Isaiah chapter uh, 30, please? I'd like us to look at verse 1 through 5 Remember, because Isaiah is a prophet at this time While well, well, this is all going on So it's, it's pretty fitting here to Read what Isaiah has to say As he's speaking in the mouthpiece of God Isaiah speaks here in Isaiah 30 You know, obviously the Holy Spirit God is speaking through him Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 5. Woe to the rebellious children. That's how God defines them rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me. They didn't even, he didn't even, Hosea didn't even call out to God, did he? And who devise plans, but not of my spirit, not by my leading, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt and not ask me for advice. God is very interested. In what we do and us coming to him. Isn't that wonderful? We have a father who cares and desires us to come and ask his will in things. And he'd like to direct our steps. It's wonderful. To strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame. And trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. For his princes were at zone and his ambassadors came to Haines. They were all ashamed of people who could not benefit them or be help or benefit, but a shame and also a reproach. That's that's what we see here. And just for time's sake, we'll move on. But if you can look at Hosea chapter 7, verses 11 through 13, and you can read uh, similar comments that we read from the prophet Hosea, again, speaking about what was happening at this time, uh, as a mouthpiece, again, calling out the fact that They weren't seeking the Lord in any of these things. Hosea chapter 7, verses 11 through 13, that is. I'm going to continue on to verse 5 now. Now the king of Assyria went throughout the land and went up to Samaria, that's the capital if you remember, and besieged it. For three years, so he's attacking it, right? For three years, and he's pressuring them. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Syria. Assyria, there's the line that you draw. There's the line that you draw. That is basically took, as we started this passage at the beginning of this chapter, it was 732. It is now 721 BC. So in a very short period of time, right? Um, Some 11 years. We see exactly how it's unfolded so quickly. And he begins to take away to Assyria. And he placed them in Halah. Because that's what they would do. And by the harbor, the river of Gozan. And the cities of the Medes. And now we get the reason. He gives us three specific reasons. God is telling us why he did this to the north. Why he did this to the nation of Israel. For so it was that the children of Israel sinned, please circle that in your Bible, against the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land in Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they feared other gods. <laughs> Clearly, Exodus says you're to have no other God, not to bow down, not to worship, nothing. So that's the first thing that basically Israel's being judged, north is being judged, and they're found guilty or wanting within the sin. The second thing, And had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel, which they had made. So he says, now they begin to worship the idols of the nations, to worship what the world is doing and follow the world. Israel began to follow the world instead of keeping with God. They forgot that they were holy and set apart. They, they were not to be like the other nations. They were to be a light to draw the other nations, the Gentile nations, to what? To God. That's what, they, that's what God had established in that covenant, that they were to draw those nations. He took those nations that were already committing idolatry, and he removed them from that part of the land so that he could put his own chosen people that would worship him and honor him and teach his truth and speak his truth so that the surrounding nations could see how Israel was blessed in a land flowing with milk and honey and how God is good and we should worship the Lord and he is truth and he is love and, and, and they were to be ambassadors of that gospel. But instead, they didn't look upon what they had in the Lord and the covenant before the Lord. They began to look at what they didn't have it became coveting and it became covetous to look at what we don't have, not what we already do. And that was their second grievous sin unto the Lord and to worship and make similar pagan images. Number three, also the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord, their God, things that were not right. And they built for themselves high places in all their cities, in all their cities, it said every single city, Erected an altar to pagan worship, and and how many hundreds of years has this been going on? And 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 nobody can ever say that God is not patient and long-suffering. He is so patient and long-suffering. If that were you and I, and somebody had done something right now, stop! Not the Lord is gracious. He's he's so wonderful. He goes on to say from watchtower to fortified city. They were setting up these watchtowers everywhere, trusting in their military, trusting in their abilities. And they're making these fortified cities with these walls and these gates, and they're saying, well, kind of like as we'll read here pretty soon, and Judah eventually will get to Nebuchadnezzar right around 605 BC, 586. We'll read about how he stands up and he looks at all that he he, not the Lord, but he believes, he, and he starts to, you know, pride, hey, look at me, look what I've done. And, and God has a way of handling that, too. That, there was a good wake-up call there. Um, we'll, we'll get to that, Lord willing. Then they set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images, and on every hill under a green tree. We just read that, right? That was one of the last things we read with, with Ahaz, right? And that was in the south, right? We're talking in the north here. Then they burned incense on all the high places, like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them, and they did wicked things to provoke the Lord in anger. Now, really what we see in this passage here is God is answering the why question. So often we ask why. Why, Lord? Why did this have to happen? Why did Israel have to go into captivity? Well, we know that in 1 Kings... Chapter 6, verse 1, we know that we read there, it was 480 years, so you can, we can actually turn our fingers there, First Kings chapter 6, verse 1, we're going to just do some dating, just to see how quick it takes a nation to implode when they get away from the Word of God, because I think it's striking, I think, I don't, I don't know that we've, we've studied this in this way, First Kings chapter 6. Verse 1, just to help us get some dating here, it says, and this is when Solomon's building the temple, you might remember we went through this together, in in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, it says, it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt. So 480 years after they were delivered from slavery in Egypt, all right? That would bring us to the time of Solomon's reign, which we know is in the 900s. So somewhere that brings us into really this whole thing sort of began, if I can say it that way, in 1440 BC. In 1440 BC, that's when they would have been delivered from Egypt. And they went into the wilderness. As you know, we've read the passages. They go into the wilderness and we see everything unfold. So 1440 BC. So if you took that, you would look at right now at 721 BC, you would say to me, that's 719 years. But wait. It's really less. Because if you go to First Samuel chapter 8... And you look at verses four through 22, we read about, before that time, right? It's a theocracy. It's a theocracy. Yes, they were complaining. Yes, there was sin, certainly. But it was a theocracy. From the point of 1 Samuel, chapter eight, verse four, or yeah, chapter eight, verses four through 22, that's when Saul, they stand up and say, "We want a king. Give us our own king. They want a monarchy." So if you really start the clock when Israel requests a monarchy monarchy and not the theocracy, when, again, Saul would be reigning, that would be 1021 B.C. Well, somewhere between 1021 and 1000 B.C., okay? So when you think about that, if you look at 1021, if you go with the longer number, and you go to 721, how many hundreds of years do you get? 300. 300 years. And 300 or less years, look what they've done because they've turned away from God. They cease to be the northern tribes in Israel. Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh has already been eradicated and moved. They've thrown away the promises of God. They've thrown away the covenant of God. They've thrown away the word of God. They didn't follow his commandments and statutes. And in 300 or less years, it unraveled so quickly that they literally imploded upon themselves. And they find themselves what? Back in captivity. Slaves once again. Talk about going back in a circle. Talk about history repeating itself. There's something really interesting that happened um, July 4th, 1776. You see, we too, at one point, most Americans, we were captives. And we fled our forefathers, those that had gone before us, to come to a nation where they would have the ability to worship, where they could. Seek God where they could be delivered and set free. I've been thinking about that, you know, 245 years ago this year. That number just kept ringing in my head, 245 years ago. I know we're not Israel, but boy, oh boy, there's some similarities really is as a nation we started so well with God's commandments statutes and judgments just like Israel when they were delivered from Egypt they began to practice they began to do things that were right in their own eyes God was long-suffering because there was still a theocracy and he was bringing them through that and then they came to the point of where they wanted to rule themselves and they elected a man by the name of Saul because they chose him and said, Saul, you'll be a good leader. And Saul was anything but a good leader. And because of that choice, that monarchy was established. And as I've mentioned already, it began to spiral faster and faster because they got to the point of where they knew more than God. They stopped seeking God. And even when they got into trouble, they stopped calling out to God and repenting and running to God. Instead, they ran to other nations. They ran to other people. And they begin to ask them for help and them for strength. They begin to build big armies and fortresses and watchtowers. Nobody can destroy us. We're the greatest superpower in the world. You know... I'm praying for this country. That number 300. And we're near 245. I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet. I'm in no way prophesying or doing something like that. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I'm recognizing that we've been at this for 245 years as a nation. And boy oh boy, I don't think there's a single soul on earth that right now wherever your political views are, would say things are absolutely crazy. There is anarchy. Things are happening. Things are out of control. We're we're deciding whether we want to have law enforcement to enforce civil law. I'm not describing whether they're good or bad or indifferent or bad. That's not my... The point is whether we want to have somebody to enforce civil law. As though... If we don't have those people, whether they're good or bad, because there are bad in those people. We cannot ignore that. But without any, any, anybody to enforce civil law, there's what? Anarchy. And yet I don't, I don't know why we're not, as a people, as a church, standing up and, and humbling ourselves and crying out to the Lord and the, the churches in America getting together. And saying, Jesus, we need you. We've gone down this road. We've gone too far, Lord. Our government's gone down this road and gone too far. But God, you're bigger than our government. You're bigger than the men and women and all the different things, good, bad, and different. Again, don't need to be political about it. You don't need to do that. But is there such a heart and a desire? Or are we so... Captivated by our devices that we can't even look up long enough to realize we are in the same place that Oshia is in. And he could have run to God. And we just read in Isaiah, didn't we? He says, they didn't come to me. They didn't ask me for help. They weren't seeking my ways. They weren't following my spirit. I don't know what else God can do to give a wake-up call to this country, to you and I, to the church, to say, wake up, America. The country I founded, the country I have blessed, has turned their back on me. And look, I'm not, I'm not berating anybody here. I'm not, I'm not berating anybody on the airwaves or anybody at home that's here. I'm appealing and I'm asking for a humble heart that we collectively will humble ourselves and reach out and call out to God and ask for repentance for the abomination of murdering babies. That we will turn around and repent to God for trying to redefine marriage. His, you know, design, pre-curse in Genesis. To repent and ask God for being indifferent to human life including our young and our old and everything in between. For not slowing down enough to bear each other's burdens, to love as Jesus Christ has loved, to put truth and integrity and morality before self and personal gain. Friends, I know if we do that, just as God desired to redeem that tribe, those tribes in the north, he desires to redeem this country. Now I read the same Bible you read. I know what's gonna happen in Revelation. I understand that. But I don't know about you, as we're gonna, because our time, we're gonna finish up here. I'll read a couple more verses and then we're gonna we're gonna close. I'm asking that we set it as a point of our hearts at this church to pray and ask God for help. To help us to turn away from the evil and the wickedness. There's a beautiful passage in um, Malachi, chapter 3, or 13, excuse me. No, 3, I was right. Chapter 3, forgive me. Verses 13 through 18, where he describes what it is to live in a nation where there's so much evil being done and yet how he has a remnant or those who decided to stay holy and pure and how those names of those people are written in a book and not blotted out that gives me great hope it matters which each and every one of us do. We'll, we'll look at that next week. We're going to cover that passage next week when we get down close to uh, verse 23 in Malachi. It's not Malici, by the way. He's not Italian, you know. <laughs> we tried to adopt him in. It didn't work out, but let's, uh, let's finish here. For they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. God has to bring judgment. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all his prophets. Every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to the law. He says, I've, he said, I've sent my watchmen. I sent my, watchman, I sent my, my prophets. I sent, my, I sent those telling you, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes. God always does that. He, he raises up mouthpiece. Billy Graham's, you know, guys that have gone before us. Prophets today that are speaking the word of God admits a time where most of the world isn't listening to the word of God, but he is faithful for those that will hear, to hear truth. And I'm so grateful to God for that. He says, "My statute, according to all law, which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear, but stiff ne- but um, stiffen their necks, like the necks of their fathers, who did not believe in the Lord their God, and they rejected his that's heres number four, and they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers in his testimonies, which he had testified against them, and followed his idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations who were all around them, concerning whom the Lord has charged them, that they should not do like them. Here's number five. So they left all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves molded image Two calves, a molded wooden image, worship the host of heaven served by Al. And they caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire, practice witchcraft and soothsaying, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. And also Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord, their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel which they made and the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel afflicted them and delivered them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them from his sight for he tore Israel from the house of David and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king then Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin for the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam which he did they did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had said by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria, as it is this day. Well, you know what? Since we're there, let's turn to Malachi. (laughs) Chapter 3, verse 13. And this is where we're going to close. So go to the book of Matthew and go one book back. Malachi. Chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 13 through 18. Look what he says about the first group of people. These are the people that are the complainers, the plainers of the day. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. And here's the passage I I truly love. This is a great comfort for you and I tonight because that's the world we're living in now. It really is. But look what God says in verse 16, for his remnant, his bride. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him. For those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. Those who fear the Lord and meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On that day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Is that not an amazing passage for you and I today? Saying that he keeps his remnant. He keeps his bride during even the most evil and wicked times. He preserves his bride. And he refers to us as his jewels. We're his jewels. I love that. It's a comforting passage. God is watching. He judges righteously. But when a nation turns away from God, God will be a faithful judge. Would you stand? We're going to pray. I'm so glad the Lord led us to uh, Malachi 3 this evening, just to finish on that, that hope, that goodness for all of us here this evening. It's just that good word. Father, we just thank you. Um, Lord, we thank you for your holiness. Lord, we thank you that you kept your promises that Israel has been brought back into uh, the nation that you established for them. Or should I say the nation has been brought into the land that you established for them? We praise you that you're a promise keeper. And Lord, we do, as, I, as you overheard, Lord, we repent. Please, God, forgive us for our wickedness, our idolatry, the things that we have done in this nation, Lord. Lord, there's none, none perfect. But God, as we gather here humbly in you and washed by your blood, we just want to ask for repentance for the sins of the nation. For our sins, Lord. And God, Jesus, that you would be glorified by the gathering of your people that are speaking of your name and rejoicing in who you are, Jesus. And worshiping and praising you as king without compromising and worshiping a a pagan idol while calling upon your name, Lord. There's no room for that, Jesus. You're not in the timeshare business. So, God, receive all of our hearts tonight. Receive all of our praise, Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for preserving this for us, that even 2,000 plus years, here we are after you have walked this earth, Jesus Christ, that we can look back and read these things and even know how to pray for the day that is at hand, Lord, for this nation, for our families, for our country, and even for the world, Lord. God, may you be glorified in all that we do, and may we be written in The good deeds of that book, Lord, that you describe. Not just the book of salvation. We know we're in the book of the Lamb of life. But, Lord, the things we do, may they be treasures heaped up to you, Jesus. And may it all be done for your kingdom and for your glory. Because we love you, Jesus, more than anything else. We all pray this in a communion tonight by, Lord, just the words you taught us. Amen. So be it. I love you all. God bless you. Ah, it's good to be a son and a daughter of the king.